0: Hello and welcome to this session on vineyard inputs we've ambitiously entitled it a new approach to an old debate protecting human health the environment and productivity so no pressure on any of our speakers then Um, but looking forward to uh, uh, I think a frank debate about the challenges and opportunities of thinking about vineyard inputs in a in a modern way shall we say particularly with regard to sustainability and the notion of all the tools in the toolbox to deliver what we need to on tackling climate change and other issues. This session, I think, will be taken over by Dr. Paul Jepson uh, when we bring him in on Zoom. But for now, uh, I shall just kick things off with uh, with uh, Jim White and Will Drayson. Perhaps the two of you can do some introductions um, and then perhaps take a couple of minutes to talk about your views and approach on this because it's something through the SWR particularly with the two of you we've been discussing for the last six months or so as to how do we do something collaboratively in this space so perhaps let's just do sort of 20 seconds each on who you both are and then perhaps I'll come back to you both to talk about um, some opening comments on where we're at at the moment so Jim why don't we start with you for name rank and serial number
1: all right thanks um- thanks and welcome everyone yeah my name is Jim White I'm the technical director at uh, at Cloudy Bay in uh, in New Zealand um we obviously heard from Sondra in Summer um earlier on in the piece uh Cloudy Bay is owned by Mowat Hennessy um so uh, we're one of the the far off out, out uh posts of um, one of those 25 maisons that she spoke of uh earlier in the day
2: thanks Will morning everyone yeah it's early early in the day down here but not as early as it is for jim so (laughs) good work jim so uh, my name is will drayden uh i uh look after the technical bit of culture for treasury wine estates in the americas uh, as well as research winemaking and sustainability so a pretty broad um uh folio of of things to work on but all very interconnected Uh, and this is an area that's close to my heart you know it's a difficult subject and it's uh, an incredibly important subject and it's a sort of, an, there's an intersection with climate change and how, how we grow grapes that's changing all the time. So one that we need to get right as an industry. Um, uh, so looking forward to the discussion.
0: Thanks, Will. Well, Laurel has joined us as well. Hi, Laurel. Um, welcome. Uh, I've just stepped in for while we wait for Paul Jepsen to, to join us, if the, te- the technology allows him to. But meanwhile, Laurel, uh, just tell us who you are and, and what you do briefly, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, but you could do it not being there on there, we go.
3: I am the executive director of the California Land Stewardship Institute, which is a nonprofit based in Napa, and we run the Fish Friendly Farming Certification Program, which has about two hundred thousand acres um, in it, and um, we certify wine grapes but also other crops. And we have about ninety-five percent of all the vineyards in Napa that are certified in our program, and. Close to 80% in other parts of um, the Northern California wine country. And Paul was trying, I was in a separate room with him. He was trying to get into this one. Okay. Um, We had it kind of set up. So I spoke, then Will spoke, then I believe Jim speaks was the way that we did it.
0: Well, I was, it's funny you say that because I was going to come to you first what do you know <laughs> i think the idea of fish friendly farming has got a lot more public attention in recent years i mean the conference i chaired last week they were talking about the dead zone off the gulf of mexico from midwest midwest crop runoff into the gulf of mexico that's been around for a long time unfortunately as an issue but there, there are lots of things happening now to try and tackle nitrogen and other runoffs and that's of course it's not the only issue here but perhaps you could start off with some some opening comments on where your organization's got to because from what i understand you're you're kind of pioneers in the space with wine um and perhaps other areas as well so tell us a bit about that and and also <laughs> what you've agreed with paul and then we'll move through the panel
3: yeah i put together some slides that was my one of my jobs so if if it's okay i'll share a screen if you can let me do that
0: Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, there we go. Great. Go ahead.
3: Okay. So this is just a little bit about our program, um, which I've already said, so I won't um, go through that again. Although I would bring one thing up, and that is that when we started this program, we made sure that it was not only a sustainability certification, but that it also provided direct regulatory compliance. This was something that all of our growers really wanted, and it's a major benefit that we provide. And this is just a, you know, a board of a lot of different logos of all the different wineries that have all their property in our program. All right, so on the vineyard inputs, a new approach to an old debate. Um, My job was to give kind of an overview of all of these different subjects so that then Um, We can talk about them when we get to questions, and the other panelists can also touch on them. So we have lots of inputs, but the real problem is that we not have outputs from the vineyard, except for the crop. So water quality is one of the big subjects. We can get pesticides in drift, stormwater runoff, eroded soil. We can get nutrients into the groundwater and storm runoff. And of course, there's always the question of farm worker safety. Um, It's very important to note that agriculture uses many more methods than just chemical control. Non-chemical control, control of dust, weeds, releasing beneficial insects, the notion of balance in the vine so it doesn't attract a lot of insects. IPM, and I'm gonna show a little bit about some of these. When choosing a chemical, go for the targeted, not the broad spectrum and pick low toxicity. Reduce or eliminate broad spectrum insecticides if you can because those are the ones that typically are the problems and rotate what you use to consider resistant issues, resistance, storage, mix and load application methods. Again, important. Nutrients aren't such a big deal in wine grape growing because most Vineyards don't use the level of nutrients um, as say field crops do, like very big difference, order of magnitude difference. So here's an example of how to reduce your insect problem by not using chemicals. And this is the kind of thing the public doesn't know about. Okay, so you're controlling dust to reduce spider mites. So over here on the left, you see two causes of dust, lots of tillage, lots of fast moving trucks on dirt roads. So, you know, go to no-till or conservation tillage. Here in the middle, you see a, a picture where they've got every other road tilled. So this is all protected from dust creation. And then their main access road is covered in gravel. Put some speed limits in, use some IPM. Okay, here's our spider mites, here's a predatory mite. So all of these different things reduce the inputs but unfortunately, we don't um, say enough about them to let the public understand that this is the first thing that gets done. And it's only really when we have an, an chance of economic crop damage. And you have to have a threshold for that before you spray. And then, you know, the spraying is always done with all the label precautions. So when you think about your vineyard, and I've put a vineyard here, a couple of them, that are all around a creek, you have to think about what are the different ways that a chemical can get out of the vineyard and into the environment? And how do I stop that? So drift is by far the biggest cause of materials moving out of where they're being sprayed and into where we don't want them. So one, you know, approach to this is to have a buffer an area between the waterway and, um, and where you don't want the spray to go. So in this case, the buffer is Habitat, which is not really a good buffer, but you could take a few rows out over here and make a buffer. Um, focus spray equipment. We have all these great new um, types of technology that can really focus on where the spray goes. Use a handheld anemometer. I always have trouble saying that word, but it measures wind speeds so that the person doing the application can measure the wind speed. And when that wind speed exceeds the label limitations, you stop spraying. Um, There's always the possibility of directly spilling materials. So you should berm where you mix them. Make sure it's not anywhere near a well or a creek. Soil erosion, no farmer wants to lose their soil. But here you see a picture of someone who didn't get a very good cover crop on their hillside vineyard, and they're reeling a lot of their topsoil down into a creek. That soil can carry a lot of chemicals. There are chemicals that adhere to soil particles. There are others that are more water soluble. So they go into the stormwater runoff. So, you know, two different ways in which that material can get into a creek. I'm gonna show this table in a second, but toxicity to fish, aquatic insects, birds, mammals, and bees is a big deal. And then finally, if you put too much nitrogen on and you water too deeply, you can leach those nutrients down into the groundwater. There are also certain chemicals that will directly leach into groundwater. So this is my last slide. These, this is the table that we use in our program in order to give growers a lot of information on how to select the chemicals that they use. So I've put a few fungicides on here and some insecticides, all of these very common use. And what you see here, and I'm happy to share this table and the data sources that it comes from, um, we use LD and LC50. That's lethal dose that kills 50% of the animal or um, aquatic invertebrate, that they are exposing to the chemical. So when you see high and very high, that means that very little of that material put into water will indeed affect that animal. Um, With mammals and birds, it usually means they ingest something. (coughs) So here you can see sulfur and copper, both very high, when it comes to fish and aquatic invertebrates, but you know, not too bad for birds and mammals. And then I just picked um, another one, tetraconazole, and you can see that that's more moderate. This this also shows the persistence in the soil, like copper never goes away, it's a heavy metal. Um, and it has a lot of um, long-term health effects if it gets into say drinking water. Um, and then, whether it can leach or move into the groundwater. The other thing to look at here is this mode of action. You wanna choose chemicals with different modes of action because that determines whether resistance will build up or not in the thing you're trying to control. Down here where I wanted to compare chlorpyrifos, which is now banned in California, also known as ban, which is a very toxic material. You can see it's high all the way across the board with something like Movento, which we use to control um, Mealybug. That's the main use of um, band or was for a while. Um, This is a targeted material versus a very broad spectrum material. Now I have included those materials used in organic farming like Pyganic as well as copper and sulfur, so that you can see that they also have implications. And that was, uh, that's it. So that was the overview. Now Will is going to, to um, give a few uh, comments from a different perspective.
0: Great. Thank you, Laurel. Fascinating. Good. We could spend hours just on those slides themselves. Yeah, uh, we could. Framing insight. Thanks very much. Um, Will, over to you for some comments.
2: It's unusual for me to talk without slides, so um, it might be a little extemporaneous, but uh, uh, Laurel set the whole thing up very well. I mean, I think my first impression of that is that it is clearly a complex area that we we probably don't expect the consumer to, to know all of the ins and outs and all of the nitty gritty about what it is we do. Um, and of course, Laurel's perspective, my perspective is is broadly California-centric, where we have um, pretty good rules and regulations about what we can do. Obviously, there's a there's a broad range of what is still applied here. Um, but as a global wine standard, we're trying to set a set a set a, um, a set of guidance or rules or or, or framework that's going to work any in any country that any member could come from. And so we do have to acknowledge that we have some pretty different growing regions, uh, pretty different climatic regions. Uh, and, and the standard is going to have to be able to adapt to all of these things. Uh, so I guess my, my initial take home is that there's, there is no one thing, one prescriptive recipe that the, the wine industry is going to be able to follow, uh, and, and cover all the things that it needs to do. Um, and you might see some palm trees behind me. I'm actually at a conference down in San Diego that uh, kicked off around the climate change, um, symposium. And, uh, it was an absolutely fascinating day uh, it's, um, well, what I made it very clear is that the, the ground that we're standing on is not still anymore. It's moving rapidly. And whether that is, uh, new invasive pests coming into our worlds that, um, that could never get a foothold beforehand because the temperature regime wasn't right. You know, it got too cold in the winter, so they would have been killed off. So you never had that problem or whether it's, um, uh, the kind of interconnected nature of our supply chain and, and a, and a shipping container full of glass to come and um, help you bottle your your chardonnay. It's also got some nasty traveler inside it that uh, is being you know being released uh, and into worlds with no no native um, competition or no no predators. So uh, we're going to be living in a very complex world, and we need a set of standards that's both uh, simple enough to be easily adopted. Um, that's broad enough to cover all the different growing conditions. A great example was was talking about potentially um, the difference between. Uh, uh, areas with more rain and the number of sprays for instance that we, you might need to do in uh, an area of California like Paso Robles which is very dry has pretty high diurnal swings but high sunlight intensity that's fantastic for just naturally killing off a lot of powdery mildew. Um, but if you go to potentially you know a, a, a big production vineyard for uh, Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand the pressure is not the same um, you'd have to spray more times in one area than another. And that's regardless of whether you're organic or, or conventional or any of these other terms that are, that are thrown around. So um, I don't know, I'm, I'm talking to the challenges of a standard, but uh, um, um, I, I think you get to see that like this is not a quick conversation with a retailer or a consumer understanding everything is that we do we have to, to, to weigh up. There's also room uh, for for people to, because of that complexity, to do the wrong thing or to do suboptimal things. Um, So I do think that there'll be a slow improvement with what we're doing, and that's what the standard that we put in place should embody. Should embody um, best practices and a slow improvement, but flexibility to be able to cover all these areas. There was a great example of this um, in the the talk yesterday, uh, which was talking about with the warming climate, we've seen so sort of there's a latitude that, that grape grapevines have grown up moving into new areas. So ones without a, necessarily a, a history of uh, grape growing, um, or at least maybe only on a small scale. Um, and the example given was, was um, uh, copper use uh, and copper use in Denmark and the Netherlands where grape growing is expanding at the moment. Um, and a large portion of the organic world, the inorganic world uses those, those, those um, um, uh, inputs in order to help treat fungal diseases, etc. cetera. And uh, from the get-go, these new areas had said, we're not gonna allow those, um, uh, or we're not gonna use those extensively. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. So how are we gonna farm? Well, the technique that's being used is the, some of the genetic diversity around the world of grapevines. And so more heavily relying on both powdery mildew resistant and downy, uh, downy mildew resistant um, grape, uh, hybrid grapevine varieties. And these are not your your father's, mother's, you know, back generations, back grapevine hybrids. There's there's an incredible diversity of new hybrid uh, varieties coming out that have very good viticultural characteristics and ones that are potentially more suited for the areas which we're growing. Um, so will that work globally for the wine industry where the consumer still wants to buy a bottle of Chardonnay or a bottle of Cabernet? Probably not but is genetic, genetic diversity and potentially other ways of um, you know, using these natural resistance uh, characteristics and, and getting them back into the vines that we use by crossbreeding, by marker assisted selection, these things, is that another technique that is potentially more durable uh, and reduces the inputs? Because I think we all want to, um, or often the debate is framed around, are you conventional? Do you use an integrated pest management technique in order to tackle these problems or, or are you organic? And really, that's more about. It's not. It's it's more about the that's about the type of thing you're you're doing or the type of chemical you're using, but it's not necessarily about the outcomes. And uh, there was a fascinating uh, study that um, uh, University of Fresno explained yesterday. And this is a this is a large grape grower in the Central Valley of California, but it's also got some of the largest organic acreage in the whole of California. So. Uh, purely organic thing and they wanted to look at the efficacy of different organic pesticides and um organic pesticides are difficult um uh, they, they sometimes they work really well if they're targeted uh, but often um uh, they you can have that they're, 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 they're not as targeted as maybe some other things um and and the conclusion of this study was that uh you know basically there weren't any particularly good tools for treating bind mealybugs by mealybug, for those of you who don't know, Laurel mentioned it briefly, they like to hide under the bark. So they're difficult to do anything with. They're difficult for um, native insects to find because they don't go under the thing and they tend to get protected by ants. And the problem with them is that they they spread a virus around which reduces productivity and reduces quality and reduces the, the, the amount of wine that you you get off these vines. Um, so just to skip to the end on that, The the conclusion was that actually doing nothing was better than implying nearly any of these organic pesticides. Um, pyrethrin was in there and it was not a strong effect, but it was very visible. You could see the the level of mealybugs was reduced in the control where you did nothing and actually was increasing these other. And it's very similar to Laurel's dust example. But um, the the application of these these organic herbicides, actually, uh, that's, that's oils and that's uh, pyganic and that's other, other, other um, materials, they actually, Affected the beneficials that were somewhat keeping the the uh, mealy bugs at bay uh, by taking those out, the beneficial insects are more susceptible than than the than the ones we're trying to um, uh, control. So all of that is to say, uh, IPM is incredibly important. I'd love to hear the rest of the panel pick up on the fact that IPM is incredibly difficult to explain. It's not an elevator pitch type of thing. It is something that we should be incorporating into all of our standards. Uh, but we should also acknowledge that that um, this discussion, and especially once it gets out of the technical community, like everyone on this call is pretty technical. We've got backgrounds in this stuff. As soon as you get out of that, science alone won't win that debate. There needs to be some trust in a standard. There needs to be a trust that uh, professional people are trying to do uh, better and better all the time, and a trust that new technologies, uh, new materials, or no materials might come in uh, to our industry, and we should use them. We should balance them out. But there's often no free lunch in, in this world, so... Uh, it'll be a complicated balancing act.
0: Thanks, Will. Perhaps IPM is just the wrong terminology uh, to describe something that might be better relabeled in a way that's, that's more understandable. We talked about the difference between sustainability and regenerative. Perhaps there's a, a new approach we could take there. Just briefly, um, well, what do you think the role of a group like this Sustainable Wine Roundtable is in perhaps making progress here? I mean, we've been talking with, with you and Jim and others about this just for those watching you know what are the opportunities there for collaboration and, and cost saving and knowledge sharing because quite a lot of stuff as you say gets locked up in technical meetings or in excellent ac- academic journals or in studies that don't get seen so what role can we play
2: there i mean i think it's multifaceted so so first of all the sustainable wine round table brings together different ends of the problem right so one end of the problem is explaining to consumers. And how does that translate to retail? How does that translate in a in the US, for instance, in a three tier system where we get our message to the endpoint? So the Sustainable Wine Roundtable plays this role where it brings together not just producers in one academic thing or, or not just the researchers or not just the sales conference, but it's the whole piece. that's bringing everyone together. Um, the other thing that happens is the Sustainable Wine Roundtable brings together a global perspective. Um, I tried to mention a couple of examples about California, Europe, but, you know, uh, I'm sure Franco or Jim are going to throw in other examples about other areas of the world, and we would be foolish to assume that um, uh, that one area has got it sorted and others haven't. Um, the other thing about sustainable wine round table is that it allows an on-ramp for other growing regions that maybe have been less involved and less participating in these conversations. Um, we don't want to make a standard that is... So difficult that only five percent of the world's grape growers can meet it Yeah, you know we'll meet it sure um i'm sure jim and anyone else on the call could meet it but then that makes it exclusionary it doesn't actually help solve anything and it still leaves a bunch of confusion in the in the consumer's mind so i think just the mere fact of having a broad platform that is allowing everyone to come in allows to share knowledge and and best practice uh, and also can potentially help us keep pace with the changing world that we're in, which is growing faster and faster at all times. Those are all key strengths of the sustainable wine roundtable, and there's a reason that it hasn't been cracked by any group or any individual beforehand. It's really difficult, uh, but potentially the conversation and the learnings we get from groups like this is the is the key.
0: Well, thanks. Well, I mean it's very early days for us to say we're making any progress here. I think what we have discovered over the last six months or so working with with you and Jim and others in particular is, is pathways forward to, to, to move exactly this area on. And we've got some pretty solid ideas now as to what we can do to at least get started, which has taken a while. So if any of you watching, listening are interested in getting involved in that through the roundtable, do contact Tom uh, and let's, let's see how we can bring you in. Um, let's turn over to, to Jim now. Jim, I'm not even going to ask you what time it is there because we always ask you that. We know it's horrible hot um so thank you uh, looking forward to hearing from you and then from franco jim
1: it is look and i'll, I'll just touch on i mean there's been so many um, interesting points made by both will and will and laurel <clears throat> and i think um you know in, in the new zealand context we've had uh, sustainable wine growing um as a as a i guess a standard here and a sustainable um first of all vineyard um platform and then and then winery Um, for over sort of 20 years now. Um, So relatively developed. And what what I think is interesting hearing about fish-friendly farming, um, hearing about other programs in the US and and certainly developing in in Europe now is that a whole lot of similarities amongst all of them. Um, The New Zealand wine growing system, I guess, is built as we've talked about with sustainable wine, our sort of global standard will be built on the the UN um, sustainable development um, uh, pillars, um, soil, water, people, uh, plant protection, um, carbon. I mean, these are the sort of fundamental um, aspects that we're all dealing with. I think ultimately, um, you know, and we, we've discussed that, we discussed it at the annual general meeting last night about coming up with a sort of, uh, I guess, a review of, of all the uh, sustainable standards around the world. And what we're going to find is, as, as you've discussed, Toby, there's so many similarities in what we're all doing and I guess building these sort of fundamental pillars. Some of the challenges we've had with New Zealand wine growing um, and we've now got uh, about 98% of all the vineyards in New Zealand certified under the system, partially um, nudged along by the fact that as a New Zealand uh, wine producer, you have to both um, use grapes from certified vineyards and make the wine in a certified winery to export it. So it's a real, it's a real market access um, tool for the New Zealand wine industry and has been very successful in helping us market our wines Um, around the world. But some of the fundamental challenges are we're trying to develop a a, a standard that will not only fit the large corporate businesses, Mowat Hennessy, Treasury, Wine Estates and and the like, but also can trickle down to the small farmers. And and you talked about the small, hot, small sort of landowners um, who could be grape growers in Chile, in, in, in China, um, you know, in a diverse range of, of countries. And so making sure that we develop a sort of a, a, a standard um, or a reference standard that, that can be all encompassing, I think is really important as Will sort of alluded to, we could, we could always find the, the 5% in there, but it's making sure that we, we sort of capture, have a system that has the flexibility to capture all those growers and then also has the flexibility to capture um, all those countries and the different wine-growing regions. And, and I, sometimes we talk about the, you know, we've obviously got the old world and the new world. Um, having worked um, within our business in, in wineries in China and India uh, in recent years, you know, we've got the newest world uh, and I'd probably include those um, Euro- Northern European countries that are, as the climate warms are going to be falling into that sort of, and even the UK, I guess, fall, will, will pretty much falls into that group um, where grape growing is now becoming... Uh, an industry, a business, and we need to make sure that we're, um, you know, have a system or a, a standard that ha- allows that sort of local flexibility to allow us to focus on not only the big global issues, um, obviously, you know, the issues that touch all of us, people, um, carbon and the like, but but really allow us to focus on a lot of those local issues as well. Um, and, you know, within, within that scope, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, obviously, um, pesticides is a major major challenge and a major sticking point and a major conversation point for for all of viticulture and wills touched on some of the ways that we can you know move forward from that with genetic material but you know some of the the, the key successes the new zealand system has had is is encouraging um, resistance management so we've got a we've got a group of sort of conventional fungicides and and you know there's really not a whole lot more sort of coming down the pipeline for for management of things like powdery mildew and and downy mildew, so ensuring those products that we've got actually have a have a, a useful life. We know that the the um, the level of toxicity of of chemicals that we're using in the vineyard today falls um, year in year out, and certainly within the New Zealand system, um, we essentially get a, a, you know a, a spray schedule each year about the products that we can use and and those that we can no longer use, and that's clearly communicated within the industry but making sure those products that we've got have got a long life ahead of them and I think in New Zealand we've got something like 95% of all the spray programs um, meeting quite a stringent range of um, resistance management tools um, to ensure that the products that we've got in some cases are really the only products that we that we can use to to um, produce grapes economically and maintain the quality and style of wines that we're trying to produce, they've got a, a long life ahead of them. Um, and we can continue to use those for many years to come. Obviously, there's going to be the trade-off. We've heard from um, organic um, and biodynamic producers um, we know that there is you know devil in the detail, copper and sulfur aren't exactly the, the nicest chemicals, and I think sometimes we think about and, and it, probably if we take our, our our technical hats off and we put, put our consumer hats on, um, you know organic means you know people don't spray. Um, and I think there's there's obviously um, a bit of a misconception there, and that's one of the key challenges that we'll have um, from a grape growing community. moving in in sustainable regenerative any of these ways is actually explaining the complexity and the detail of what these systems actually encompass um, versus the sort of simplistic notion that um, you know organic grapes or organic farmers don't do anything um, and they're wonderful for for the environment where they may be using you know a lot more carbon they might be burning a whole lot more diesel to control underlined weeds or whatever that um, whatever that may be so there's always going to be trade-offs in this and having a system that that allows growers to, to assess their their own challenges um, and wineries and then make those decisions about you know sometimes what is the lesser of two evils
0: thanks jim yeah i mean explaining the complexity of the science is so interesting isn't it i mean it's something the science community is always wringing its hands about you know how do we become better science communicators and i think over time there's going to need to be a conversation that needs to be had through the swr as well as you know how, how do we talk to people about this I always love um, the story that John Entine of the Genetic Literacy Project tells about the the very expensive organic grapefruit that you can buy in Whole Foods Market and elsewhere was actually created by mutagenesis. Uh, which is blasting the genes with radiation and toxic chemicals until you get the the, the uh, mutation that you want, uh, and then it becomes the organic grapefruit, which is sold for nine dollars, and everyone feels great about it. But the process of creating it wasn't perhaps what you might think, <laughs> put it that way. Um, and I think that I always think of that example as about you know understanding the complexity of of how things come to be and so on so anyway th- that's clearly going to need to be a focus for us at some point <laughs> along with many of the other issues we need to tackle franco thanks for joining us um you've been listening very carefully to all of this uh, very interested to hear your thoughts on this subject franco
4: okay thank you very much uh, i'm going to share a screen i have a, a teeny presentation so we can see here um, let me know if you are seeing okay now. Okay, yeah. I'm going right. to talk uh, about this vineyard inputs and a little of history uh, that I try to organize here uh, year after year, and we can see that the, the first fertilizations with animal manure, so the first inputs that we have in history, is around 2000, 2000 BC. So. We have a lot of history of inputs most of all in, in vineyards too so uh, and then in the 2000s in, in yeah in the 60s we had the the greener revolution with all these type of organic inorganic fertilizers and everything so i think that nowadays we have to make a change i think that we have a duty, like, uh, like technical owners of different vineyards different growers etc uh, we have a duty right now to start to do change about this type of um, management that we are doing before and try to have a balance between uh, the inputs that we do, we use normally, and then the quality of the inputs that we are using. You know? uh, here, I try to make like a I think in this type of vineyard inputs, uh, I try to relation this with the different managements that we, we could have in our own vineyard. Um, we start with a conventional agriculture, when, when we start to make it with more complexity and we start to, to have more, uh, I don't know how to say, but like a more, um, and when we start to think more about it and try to make a complexity of, of all of our vineyards, we try to, work, first of all, with IPM, that, that's a topic that they're, they're talking about, uh, trying to be more uh, cautious about, conscious about the different inputs that we're trying to do. But I think that this is not the end of the, of, this, of this topic in our vineyards. I think that we have a cultural progress between the conventional agriculture and the North ones, trying to preserve, first of all, the substitution of different inputs for greener ones I think that this is a really, uh, for, for me, for example, from Mendoza, Argentina, it's a very uh, uh, it's an objective that we can reach uh, very easily, honestly. We have a climate here that, uh, that gives you this advantage about another different type of climates. That for sure, uh, you have different issues that could be very different than Mendoza. Um and then we try to I try to to have a, a cultural I think improvement with the redesign and the self-sufficiency of our our own vineyards. I think that the inputs that we have to put in an external way, uh, we can have it inside of our own vineyards, and that's a duty that we have to take like owners, like growers or like uh, techniques that are working in, in the fields try to preserve this biodiversity and try to, to have this production with the same quality and quantity but uh, preserving the sustainability of, of, of the project. So I think that here we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of tasks to do everyone in different areas, but I think that this is the way that we have to try and to, to work with. I'm, I'm not uh, making focus in a conventional or bad agriculture or, or an ecologic or good agriculture. I think that we have an evolution that we have trying to make a step-by-step step and trying to preserve, first of all, the, the yields and the quality that we have to make because obviously we have to achieve these objectives year after year, but trying to make in complex the ecosystem uh, to minimize the depends on the dependence of different inputs that could make a toxic for consumer and so forth. Uh, this is uh, one of the of the tasks that we are doing today we are trying to preserve more about the biodiversity we are trying to making this uh, we are thinking more in a vineyard that it's not only a, a factory of grapes we can say uh, we can say that we have to and keep back the concept of a binger with all this biodiversity and the complexity that we will have in this and how we can take advantage of this biodiversity to preserve and to minimize the input dependence that was checking before so uh, for example here we have all this biodiversity here i have two different um, machines that you i think that you can see yeah you can see here. I think that this, for example, could be a really good uh, exponent of, of what type of agriculture we have to we can preserve here, trying to minimize the use of herbicides or, or different inputs that could um, harm not only the health of the wines because it's a it's really an issue when you have all these pesticides, uh, not only in organic, that uh, this is our case in the Mendoces, uh, but uh, I, even in conventional wines, you I think that we have this duty to try to, to minimize this impact, you know. So um this is mostly the the things that I think that we have to try to, to preserve and try to make an effort in this, in the next generations to try to to have all this uh this area try to be more conscious for that. Uh, and here in the scale for example, we're trying to work in a 360 sustainability commitment uh, that trying to make not only um, a sustainability by the uh, environmental side, uh, also we're trying to work with, uh, with the sustainability uh, for organic, yes, but also with, for, for life and another type, I think that the sustainability and the different inputs could make a huge change if we try to make this, uh, try to work with these vineyards, not only uh, concentrating in, in the fruit, uh, I think that we have to work more with people and uh, with more our environment. I think that this is going to be great to, to have a, a, a huge accomplish. And, and I, I know that it's more complicated. Uh, of course, we have more uh, complexity with this type of ecosystems, but I think that it's really portable, they are uh, really reusable. So um, yeah, I, I think that we have to work in, in, this, in, in this way. Um, this is most of all my, my idea about this type of inputs. Uh, I think that we have a lot of work to do, uh, uh, not only for conventional ones, uh, the organic production have to have a, a change of paradigm, because. Many of organic growers are using, for example, copper or sulfur without any, without um, seeing the the amount that they use in the vineyard. So that it's going to be a huge change that we have to do for conventional organic and another type of production.
0: Thank you. On that last comment, Franco, what kind of gains do you think we could see through some fairly simple? Initial techniques of reducing unnecessary inputs to your last point. I mean, in your experience, when you look around at what you've seen, how far can we get with some quick wins here?
4: I think that that we have a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities to have some changes. I think that first of all, the the planting and and the rootstock, for example, it's it's a very nice initiative to try to preserve the use of inputs in the future. For example for fertilizers for and everything and i think that this is something that here in argentina at least it's like a really it's a really poor information that we use here so i think that first of all we have to be very more uh familiarized with this type of rootstock and everything uh, not only here worldwide aspect and um, then we have to try to to be more conscious or with more supervision about the different cultural practices that we can do here. For example, the tillage of these machines that I won't see, we're seeing in the video. I think that that helps a lot to reduce the use of different inputs um, and it's not complicated. I mean, uh, here, for example, we are, we're working in organic uh, since uh, 15 years ago, uh, from the very beginning. So. And' that's, it. that's impressive that the quality and the quality that we have here, it's uh, the same than in a conventional vineyard. So I think it's possible. I think that this is an objective that we can uh, realize. Uh, we only have a, a, a really huge work to do and uh, it's not it's not minor the, the work that we have to do and, and the different techniques that we have to practice. But I think that we have the duty too, to to be more open to this information trying to help in different growers, trying to help in in every area that we are working. We have to be more conscious about not only our own vineyards, uh, also we have to be more open to different growers to try to help them, to try to prioritize because this is an issue that's going to be for all of us, not only in our own winery or our own vineyard, uh, we will have to work more, I think, with the information. You know, when I started work here about uh, seven years ago, uh, we don't have so many information. And, uh, we have to learn a lot about the experiences. Uh, and I think that in every area, it's almost the same. Uh, many of them are trying to work with different experiences, trying to, uh, in, a, in learning. And I think that we maybe we can uh, do some changes from from here trying to be more open with information and trying to help each other i think that that could be a really huge step in that
0: thank you there's some really interesting conversations in the in the chat as well about um, the point about a landscape review of existing regulations policy so it seems to me there's a few areas we could focus on from here first of all we can look at let's stop doing bad things (laughs) because there are some very inefficient things still happening and we need to make the case for them not to happen there's the the there's the, the landscape of policy and regulations bit that we've talked about in the chat and laurel perhaps you could talk about that very briefly in a minute as to how we could take that forward and then thirdly the bit that we sort of mentioned is is the role of technology here you know spreading the word about what's possible to do uh, that has a lower impact i mean we uh, the conference i chaired last week with 200 food companies that the incredibly well-funded tech startups who sponsored it have got some remarkable solutions out there for other crops and i'm sure there are many of them being applied to wine as well we see it with with monarch tractor and you know, the idea of the electric vineyard um, and and assessing, you know, your electric tractor moving silently up and down the rows, assessing your crop while you sleep and giving you a report on a targeted intervention in the morning. Perhaps that's still a long way off, um, but interested uh, to hear any final comments for the panel on how we take this forward and whether or not there are additional areas to address. So why don't we start with Jim and then Will briefly, both of you, then perhaps I'll turn to you, Laurel, for a final comment. Uh, Jim, any reflections?
1: Yeah, look, there was a bit of comment about the, the sort of regulations in each country. And I think that's got to be the absolute baseline minimum minimum for, for any, any standard, obviously. Um, but it should be, you know, the standard should, should encourage um, constant improvement or continuous improvement. I think, um, it, it, you know, in the New Zealand context, talked a little bit about, um, about uh, technology. Well, we've got an electronic spray diary system that all growers here have to use. Um, as a winery, we can tap in and look at all our spray growers' systems, but you know, quite simple use of technology. And we've had to drag a lot of growers kicking and screaming from from paper um, through to computers over the last sort of five or six years. But it's a pretty simple way for for to provide some 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 good checks and balances to what people are actually applying. Are they applying the right amounts, the it, it, with the right amount of water, and, and getting the most effic- um getting the most use out of the products they're putting on their vineyard? So I think there definitely is some some simple. Um, uh, technology tools that can be, be sort of closely, you know, or quite simply rolled out across fairly large parts of the industry and have some relatively um, some big wins. Um, everyone's got a phone in their hand these days and it's a very powerful computer and um, we can use those to, to far greater advantage. Having some sort of um you know the, the the highlighted highlighted systems that can be um easily applied to various parts of the world i think is going to be, provide some huge advantages and that's long before we go to that sort of you know the digital vineyard which which you know we're all thinking about but as um you know for the reality of most growers around the world is a long long way away
0: thanks jim thoughtful note to finish on uh well brief comments before we turn to laurel
2: um i, I second the, uh, the the thought that uh as a bare minimum, we need to kind of understand the the, the legal standards of what could be applied. Um, I also think um, we don't want to make technology a barrier to people coming into a more sustainable way of farming. So so that can't be the only solution. Um, and then final thought, I, I, I think like this section was titled Vineyard Inputs, right, which is somewhat kind of uh, euphemistic for spraying something nasty or chemicals or something like that. But it really isn't about just inputs. Um, uh, I, I saw yesterday a, a presentation around uh, uh, underground watering, which doesn't work in California. Unfortunately, we have too many gophers. They would just destroy the place. But um, what it meant is you could shift your drip line from being underneath the the vine um, and needing to use equipment like Franco was showing to someone offset so your regular mower could go through there and take care of things. And that completely changes the paradigm about needing to use herbicides so I, I think it's it's more than just inputs it's inputs it's practices it's it's um techniques that are going to work and, and if we have a, a basket full of these solutions and and we can help share them uh, they'll work in some areas and not in others but if we can push that forward is showing different techniques that really do do move things forward i think we can in reduce input usage and become more sustainable um and uh yeah i I just think that sometimes we set ourselves up for failure with too many dichotomies about you're doing this thing or you're this thing and none of us are probably one thing or the other. Um, and so we do need to make sure there's a balanced approach across uh, all these things and and I love your slide Franka, but we need to take from a little bit of each of those buckets and apply them to improve and lighten our footprint.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, time for brief comment from Laurel before we close. Um, and then uh, that's the end of the session. So Laurel over to you for. Closing comment.
3: Um, I'll just say two things. Number one is I think that the round table is a great place for people to share a lot of these ideas because none of this is gonna be a one size fits all. So the more that we share all these different upcoming ideas, including like what kind of regulation do you have in your country versus my country, um, it's going to improve everybody's ability to grow grapes more sustainably. So that would be my main thing. My second thing is we need to tell the story a whole lot better. Agriculture has come such a long ways from using very harsh chemicals to using very targeted chemicals, using non-chemical methods, using IPM, using all these things, but nobody but folks in the business know about it. So lots more stories out to the public about how much work goes into in making this crop more sustainable
0: absolutely a great note to finish on uh, franco laurel will and jim thank you all so much for a frank and honest conversation which i think is helping us move forward every conversation we have about this and what we can do about it practically helps us move forward through the round table and and, and if any of you listening or watching would like to join us on that journey please do so because we're we're a committed bunch uh, and uh, we're determined to make some progress on this soon so thank you all so much for watching please join me in giving a virtual round of applause to our fantastic panel, thank you all.